Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. In this episode, we're going we're gonna to be talking about some darker content towards the end, as the, the title of the episode uh, implies. And indeed, even the darker, the less dark elements we're going to talk about are kind of uh, a crash course in the, um, the, the, the misadventures of colonialism. Uh, but before we get into all of that, we thought we'd, we'd kick off with uh, maybe some lighter content. Yeah, Robert, I understand that you want to tell me about pee-pee nuts. Yes, I would love to tell you about uh, not only pee-pee nuts, Joe, but poop candy as well. Poop candy, that's what the dog believes comes out of the cat's butt. Oh, now you've taken into darker territory, Joe. Uh, but uh, no, I'm not. T- I'm talking about the rearing of, uh, of human children as opposed to dogs here. Um, and, and this ties into the overall theme here, the use of... The, often the use of bounties and bribes, yeah. and then what happens when the economics of that spirals out of control. So uh, my son is four now, but uh-huh. there was a, a time uh, not too long ago when we were trying to potty train him to get him to actually um, urinate and defecate in the toilet uh, when he needed to go to listen to his body and follow up. So it's apparently not enough just to say that is where you go do such business and point to the toilet. You actually you need to introduce some incentives to motivate this behavior. Right. And there 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 is many different schools of parenting as there are parents. So some some people have a real problem with with using bribes in any situation. Uh-huh. But uh, hey, it's what we did and it worked for us. Then you've also got the poop anywhere parents who I, I hear are real trouble. Well, that's well, no, I know people who are using that technique and that that seems to work for them. But uh, well, I was just kidding. Wait, that's a real parenting philosophy. I thought you were poop talking, anywhere. Well, there is there are different toilet training techniques that imply. Uh, it's not so much a poop anywhere. Um, what it means is like the kid will go around without pants on, mm-hmm. and then when they need to go, you scoop them up, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what I thought you were uh, oh, referring okay. to there. Believe me, there are a lot of different uh, techniques out there. And uh, and and that one in particular, yeah, I know some people have used that, and it, it worked for them. Huh. Okay. In our case, though, we, we issued a strict bounty. Okay. For every successful urination in the potty, um, he would get one honey sesame nut from this little bag. Honey uh, sesame nut. Yeah, like you buy at uh, Trader Joe's. Oh, I and haven't then, had that. Oh, they're they're delicious. Um, I, I had to stop eating them for a while when they were when they became peepee nuts for me, kind of the the by association. <laughs> but they're great. Uh, and on the other hand, for every successful poop in the toilet, which is was even more important to us uh, at the time, he would get a, a single fruit gummy. Okay, and that was the the poop candy. So the policy proved effective for us, but it also led to a period uh, during which he began to make a case uh, that each piece of feces was surely a separate poop and should then result in additional poop candies, as well as the as any interruption in the stream of urine would result in two or more instances of urination, and each would require a separate reward. Okay, well, this this is smart bargaining, actually. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean it's it's crazy too when I look back and realize that he hadn't, and he still hasn't really discovered the power of lying. Right. Uh, so, but there was still this tendency to bend the rule and even break the spirit of the rule for greater rewards. Now, after that, we clarified the policy, and then luckily we were able to phase it out shortly after that. But how might things have escalated if if we hadn't? You know, that's that's something to think about, and I've been thinking about in researching this topic. Well, Robert, I want to tell you a story 
It okay. might not be a true story, but but it's an interesting story with some very true analogs uh, about the power of incentives and the, the sometimes unintended consequences of incentives. Okay. And about serpents, of course. Ah. Asps. Very dangerous. Now, the story goes something like this. In colonial India, you had a British colonial administrator who decided there were too many cobras in the city of Delhi. You know, I got cobras coming out of my ears. We got to get rid of all these <laughs> things. Though I wonder what that actually looked like. I mean, if this really happened. I imagine we're all picturing that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, it was probably more like I saw one cobra and that was too many. We've mm-hmm. got a cobra problem in the city. Uh, but anyway, so he wanted to get rid of the cobras in the city. Kill them all. Get them out of here. So he came up with a solution. Put a bounty on the cobras. Oh, okay. Sounds simple. That makes sense. So if you kill a cobra, just bring the dead snake to the government office and receive a cash award. Yeah, they are making it worth your while to take time out of your day to kill a snake or two. Yeah, and at first it seemed like this was working great. They're collecting plenty of cobras. But before long, the local administrators discovered a problem. The people had figured out a way to game the system and turn the snake bounty into free money. They weren't catching cobras from the city and killing them. They were farming cobras Uh at home, killing them once they were mature and then bringing them in to get the bounty. Now, obviously, they couldn't allow this kind of mischief to continue, so the administrators ended the cobra bounty. But now you had all these snake breeders who had been farming cobras in order to get the bounty, and they're they're stuck with hundreds of worthless snakes. So what do you do with them? Well, just release them. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So they have no incentive for keeping them. They release them into the streets, and the cobra population in the city drastically increases. This leads to the principle that's now known to economists as the cobra effect. And it's when a strategy implemented to solve a problem directly makes the problem worse. And uh, the story about cobras in Delhi, as I mentioned, might be nothing more than a modern folktale. I, I haven't come across any evidence that it actually happened. But there are plenty of examples where exactly this type of thing has definitely occurred in the real world. That's right. Uh, and one of them occurs with another colonial situation, another infestation in uh, Hanoi, Vietnam. All right. This would have been the 19th century. So you had uh, French colonial authorities in Vietnam. And, you know, there are various problems to focus in on. But the one they choose to really apply their attention to is the city's rat problem. Now, I can imagine the rat problem was Probably a real problem. Probably a real problem. That, yes. You know, like the cobra thing, you can imagine a colonial administrator sees one cobra and decides that there's a cobra problem in the city. Right. Yeah. Because I can't think of a situation where another city has had a, had a snake infestation problem offhand. But rats, of course, rat problems have been an issue throughout uh, human history. Yeah. It's quite common to have rat problems in any large population center. People produce a lot of garbage. Garbage mm-hmm. is tasty. They they have sewers that are great places to, to dwell in and, and have your little breeding grounds. Yeah. They're smart and they're successful. And uh, as was learned, uh, this is the other key thing. This is a, one of the reasons that they focused in on rats so much is that in 1894, that's when Alexandra Yersin discovered that bubonic plague was caused caused by little fleas that rode on rats. Oh, so that so you can see why they were concerned. Right. So. What did they do? Well, they did what what often happens in these cases. They assigned some professional rat catchers to, to 
take care of everything. But then that's not enough. So they turn to volunteers. They turn to to mercenary uh, rat catchers. And they offer a bounty of one cent per rat tail. And the idea here was that, especially since the disease was an issue, asking the rat catchers to handle the body was going to be too much to ask, would be a burden and just a little gross. Right. From what I've read, you know, they'd catch thousands of rats in the sewer in, in a very short period of time. Lugging all those dead rat bodies would actually be really heavy. Yeah, and so, and disgusting. <laughs> yeah, so just to prove how many you killed, really just take the tail. Right. So that's yeah, that's exactly what they did. They brought in the tail and it seemed to be working at first. But then the authorities began to notice something uh, curious in the streets. They noticed a bunch of rats running around without tails. Ooh. So they quickly realized that some of those uh, enterprising rat catchers out there were simply lopping the tails off of the wild rats when they they caught them, uh, perhaps out of laziness, but more likely so that tailless rats could go forth, breed, and produce more rat tails to harvest. Yeah, no, they were being economically smart. They yeah. were they were trying to, you know, if you are living off the land, you don't want to destroy all of the the vegetation in the land, so you only pick from some of the plants. You don't kill every plant. Right. It's like the Policy or the policy that's supposed to be in place with stone crabs. You harvest one of the uh, of the, uh, the, the the claws, mm-hmm. and then you let the creature go. You don't harvest them both. Right. So that that was one of the ramifications of the bounty. But much like our cobra example, this the the exact same thing took place. Um, others took advantage of the law by establishing rat farms. Whoops. Yep. Because rats are are easy to breed. <laughs> I mean, you, rats, you don't even have to try. You really, really don't have to try. You just collect some rats and let them do their thing. And you're going to have more rats, which you can then lop their tails off and collect your bounty. So the, the French were horrified that their efforts to curb the rat population was was actually increasing it. And they scrapped the bounty program entirely. And in 1903, bubonic plague broke out in Hanoi. <laughs> so, oh, no. Yeah. So there's there's a lot more there are, there are a number of more angles to this story. There's a great paper out there that ties all of this in with this sort of the doomed nature of French rule in Vietnam and it's titled Of Rats, Rice and Race: The Great Hanoi Rat Massacre: An Episode in French Colonial History by Michael G. Van. Yeah, and there's an older episode of Freakonomics Radio, actually, that deals exactly with the Cobra effect that I listened to. And it's a good episode. It's worth checking out. So we won't rehash everything they cover in their show. But just to mention a couple other interesting examples they bring up, one is a very similar situation to the rats in Hanoi. Uh, but this is with feral pigs in Fort Benning, Georgia. Ah, so it's a local tale. Right. Have you been to Fort Benning? I've been through there, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see any pigs? No, no, I saw I saw an interesting overpass, and I believe that's that's the extent of it. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's in I think Southwest Georgia. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So th- there are a lot of wild pigs in this area. They're they're invasive, feral pigs, and th- they do a lot of damage. They dig everything up. They get into your garbage. They eat everything. They they cause damage to government property and buildings. So. People wanted to do something about this feral pig problem. So there was a cash bounty exchange program for pigtails established to fight the feral pig problem. But same problems we've encountered before. There's a lot of suspicion that some of these pigtails people were turning in for a cash reward came from illicit sources, maybe some meat processing. We're not exactly sure. And then in the end, it looks like baiting practices established by the pig bounty hunters 
actually probably increased the number of wild pigs in the area. Oh, wow. So people claim all these cash rewards because they put out a bunch of food to attract pigs and then they shoot some of them. But, you know, you were feeding the pigs, fattening them up for breeding and producing more pigs. Because you're you're trying to put a value on the elimination of the animal. But in doing so, you've put a value on the continued life of the animal. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's interesting how that how that plays out. And this brings me to a thought about the nature of incentives, because it, it sort of highlights that y- you can't have an incentive that's just sort of logically associated with the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. In order to try to prevent the gaming of the system, you really need to make incentives as closely aligned to the actual desired outcome as possible. So what I mean by that is if you want to eliminate cobras from the city, don't offer cash rewards for dead cobras because you don't want dead cobras. That's not the outcome you're looking for. You want an absence of cobras. Yeah. So, but that's a lot harder to incentivize, right? Yeah. You'd have have somebody come along and investigate for cobra free spaces. Exactly. Yeah. You need more complex systems to try to incentivize that so for example maybe you could establish a cobra control authority mm-hmm. and then the employees of this organization are given a cash bonus that's proportional to how few cobra bites are reported in local hospitals in a given year uh, but even with that you run into some some problems right like without strict controls on that what if you have members of the cobra control authority intimidating people not to report their cobra bites or not to go to the hospital or intimidating people at oh, hospitals yeah. not to report them to the government uh so it just seems like whenever you introduce incentive programs to to a wide ranging you know group of participants to the public essentially you you introduce the problem that people are going to find ways to access the reward without helping you achieve your goal. It's it seems like it should be a Dr. Seuss book or kind of a um, a Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of tale, right? Yeah. Uh, just as, as it spirals out of control in these examples. Um, I can't help but think of quotas that are set forth for law enforcement sometimes, you know, yeah. like um, you, know, you got to get so many uh, speeding uh, tickets out there. Uh-huh. And so you end up having a uh, police officer setting up and speed traps to to hit those quotas. Yeah. Uh, which in that case, I guess it's not a clear. It's not necessarily scenario. making the problem worse, but no. it, it, it's also just kind of like <laughs> we're not really stopping it. We're just kind of like setting up a system to to continually collect the bounty on speeding. Yeah. Like, I, I guess I can see where there's a balance there. Right. So if if it depends on like how high the quota is and how aggressive you are in carrying it out. Right. Because if there's a balance to where, all right, you're just people know not to go above a certain speed or they should know. And and if they don't, they get a ticket. So like both and that is going to make the roads safer. But I guess the, the more the, the focus is on hitting the quota, mm-hmm. getting the essentially the bounty. Uh, and losing sight of the the purpose of the law entirely, that's where things get out of whack and you end up with like notorious speed traps. Right. And I think this gets into a concept that's very closely related to the Cobra effect, though I think technically the Cobra effect wouldn't have to be just in incentives and economics. If you're talking more generally about anything 
where an attempt to solve a problem makes the problem worse. You could even go to the example of uh, of like Eke Homo, mm-hmm. you know, that that great oh. uh, story of uh, the, the person who is trying to touch up this this classic painting of Christ and in, in his passion moment. Uh, it had some damage to it over the years trying to touch it up. And he ends up having this kind of wailing monkey face, yes, <laughs> uh, which is one of my favorite images from the whole Internet. Yes, but and then she wasn't working for a bounty. But imagine if there was a bounty out yeah. there on restoring old works of art. Right, you could end up with with however many of these uh, strange little monkey faces, uh, just completely obliterating art history. Yeah, I guess the problem there is that you are you are giving people who don't have proper training in an area an uh, incentive to participate in the area, and thus they're probably going to make things worse. But another way of framing the issue is just the concept of perverse incentives, meaning specifically in the Cobra effect, the intended solution to a problem makes that problem worse. Perverse incentives can just mean incentives that cause unintended negative outcomes, especially if they're contrary to the benefit of the people who offer the incentives. This all also reminds me of um, a moment in one of my favorite books. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's, uh, Sutry. Oh yeah, we talked about this the other day, mm-hmm. where, uh, there, there's a bounty on, I think, rabies bats in that book, isn't there? Yeah, like the, the local university there, they, they want to, or is it the health department? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read either. it. But interested official parties would like to see the bodies of local bats. Uh huh. Uh, you know, I think and, it's because of rabies. Th- yeah, there's a very enterprising young character in the book named Harrogate, mm-hmm. who at the beginning of the book is arrested for having illicit relations with watermelons that yes. did not belong to him. Uh, but then later on, he comes up with some just ingenious schemes for collecting bats. I think far more bats than was really, uh, than he was intended to collect. Yeah, he ends up strolling into town with just a sack of dead bats, which he gets by, I believe, he, he buys some poison and he poisons little pieces of meat and slingshots them into the air because the the bats are accustomed to preying on insects that are flying through the air. I believe that's the scheme. That's a great book. It is. It's just, it makes me want to read it again. But um, uh, at any rate, they end up, the, the doctor, the scientist ends up uh, confronting him when he brings this bag in and he and says, look, we know you, you did not just find these bats, but we can't figure out how you did it. You've got to tell us how you actually killed these bats. And then he uh, he relates the, the story of the slingshot. Oh, yeah, that's it. He was supposed to be collecting dead bats, but right. instead he was killing He bats. was making dead bats. So, you know, in a sense, they were, um, I guess the effort here was to protect humans, protect health, but also, you know, not eradicate bats. That was not the intended um, outcome. But uh, Harrogate did his best uh, to do just that in order to get the sweet bounty. Mm -hmm. But, of course, that is not the only book by our great brutal novelist, uh, Cormac McCarthy, to feature bounties. That's right. Uh, There's also Blood Meridian, a great novel, horrific novel, um, in in large ways, I think, unfilmable novel. Yeah. uh, And I kind of hope it's unfilmable. It it, it is... uh... Would you would you call it nihilistic? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, th- there's just not much redeemable in the world, and it. it is a book of uh, uh, brutal and cruel people doing brutal and cruel things. Yeah, and one individual who might not be a person at all, who might yeah. be an Speaking embodiment of uh, of awfulness. The judge. Yeah, yeah. Judge Holden, who himself is probably based very loosely on a real individual who was in a gang of scalp hunters led by an actual historic individual, 
one John Galton, um, who was indeed a, a superstar in the vile trade of scalp hunting, um, harvesting by some accounts uh, 250 scalps in a single raid once. And fittingly, his uh, group was eventually ambushed and scalped by a band of uh, Quichan uh, tribespeople. So, wow. um, so we shouldn't dwell too much on the nasty details, but we do need to discuss what scalping is and, and scalp hunting, what what this practice consists of and yeah. where it came from. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, most of you probably don't even need to be told, especially if you've uh, consumed much in the way of American uh, Western history or fiction, uh, not only Blood Meridian, but um, Larry McMurtry's uh, Lonesome Dove uh, novels uh, instantly come to mind as well. Both. I've actually never read Lonesome Dove. Oh, it's it's quite it's quite good. Yeah. Uh, and Comanche Moon is another one in that series that I read that was really good and really bizarre in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both of these authors really, really gaze deep into the, the gruesome spectacle of the act. It entails the slicing, flaying, ripping away of a portion or all of the human scalp. Um, and then, then, then you have this resulting, um, trophy. Uh, the victim can be living or dead, and there are plenty of tales of scalping survivors, uh, including uh, in 1864, probably the most famous uh, is a 13-year-old Robert McGee, um, and he's famous because there's a wonderful, gruesome photograph of him as an adult uh, showing off his scalping scars. scars. So, um, in, And in this case, he was uh, scalped uh, by a band of uh, Sioux Indians. So uh, look up that photo online if you really want to see it. Um, but where did the act come from? That's actually something that has been uh, there's been a kind of a debate on that over the years. Right. Because we definitely do see it practiced by by both sides in the American frontier. Right. Yeah. So it's it comes down to is this uh, an ancient um, Native American act that uh, various uh, cultural groups uh, took part in? Or is this something that Westerners introduced mm-hmm. uh, that the colonists introduced to the new world? Um now, certainly scalping was long attributed as a purely Native American act, and indeed we see plenty of examples of, of scalping both between tribes and against the colonial invaders. Yeah, and that that's something I think even when I was a kid, just my idea of where this came from, I guess if you watch old cartoons or something mm-hmm. like that, you get the idea that this is something that Native American tribes, that their warriors would do to the enemies, not something that was done by European settlers, but in fact it was done by European settlers. Yeah, yeah, and we'll We'll, we'll see some plenty of examples of that uh, to come here. But it was I think it is often presented as this kind of savage thing that savage tribes people do. Right. Um, this uh, Eurocentric view of it. Yeah. Now, there was a, certainly a backlash against that view, uh, as pointed out in a wonderful article titled The Unkindest Cut or Who Invented Scalping by James Axtell and William C. Struvent in uh, 1980. And if you want a blow by bloody blow account of the history of scalping, that's a good article to seek out. Uh, but they say that the uh, the quote-unquote savage Indian take on scalping was replaced during the 20th century for a spell there by Native American activists who uh, who who really pushed forward the the view that all the, that it was basically bloodthirsty colonials who introduced the practice to the native peoples of the Americas by encouraging them to do so by instituting bounties on uh, on other uh, on other tribes people and and essentially teaching them to take these headskins uh, from others so under this revisionist view the the scalping practice came from the european settlers and was transferred to the frontier tribes Correct. at the time however uh after this, a lot, you know, a lot of uh, people on the other side of the uh, the issue, they they weighed in, and really, when you do look at the history and look at the historical accounts, you see that the practice of taking scalps goes back 
way through uh, colonial invasion to uh, pre-Columbian times, okay? And it was quite widespread through North America and even parts of South America. There's there's archaeological evidence that shows evidence of post-mortem scalpings and skulls that showed evidence that the victim survived the mutilation long enough for the bone tissue to regenerate. Wow. And another uh, point that's often brought up is that certainly Europeans had had plenty of ways to torment and torture and mutilate the body. Right. We're uh, not trying to make them look good by comparison. Right. But for all their drawing and quartering and hanging and hacking and, and what have you, you really don't see much in the way of scalp taking in European tradition prior to this point. And even in even language itself. Um, so s- scalping as a word, the word itself, scalp, uh, predates the 17th century. It arises from a Scandinavian root, and uh, and it was uh, featured in a, in a 1601 edition of uh, Pliny the Elder's Natural History, though uh, the explorers in the New World tended to be unversed in Latin classics, so they probably <laughs> weren't exposed to it. Right. Now, Instead, such uh, trophies were described as head skins or hair scalps. They just talked about skinning and flaying um, until scalps and scalping became a popular term in 1676 during King Philip's War between uh, uh, Native American tribes and the English colonists and their Native American allies. And meanwhile, there's a, on the other hand, though, there's a fairly robust vocabulary for scalps in many of the native tongues. The, o, the Ojibwa language distinguishes between scalp and Sioux scalp. So hmm. There's a separate word for each. Uh, while Eastern Abenaki language has special terminology for enemy scalps that are already taken as trophies, for scalps that could be taken, and scalps from the living and the dead. Hmm. So it's kind of like those, uh, the, the old world, the old saying that Inuits have all these different words for snow because there's so much of it. You could make the the argument that the scalping was enough of a practice that there were uh, specific terms that were used in some of these cultures for specific types of scalps. Yes, but of course, as we see with the European invaders of the American continents, uh, they, they had all of their own barbaric and violent practices. And even though scalping doesn't traditionally appear to be strongly represented among them, they took to it quite rapidly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could definitely say that. I mean, they were kind of like, well... The way we did it back home is we just uh, tore a person into four pieces with horses. But, uh, hey, if you want to just take the scalp, we can do that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the crazy part, uh, because it's one thing to, to look at these native tribes who had who had this in their culture and their tradition. And, and there may even be certain, you know, supernatural uh, elements that are um, factored into it. Mm-hmm. But the, the colonists had none of that. You just had a bunch of, you know, in most cases, Protestants showing up in the, the New World and and readily not, getting into the act. Right. It's not a part of their traditional cultural war practice. It's more just sort of an adopted act of violence. Right. And uh, violence, of course, becomes a standard in relations between colonists and the native inhabitants of the Americas. Mm-hmm. Pretty much pretty much from inception, pretty much from that first uh, outside context event when the two met. Violence just continues to be a part of their history. Um and uh, and that's where the the scalping really begins to to pick up. So it seems, based on most accounts, all right, it's a pre-existing thing that happens between tribe members in their tribal wars, often as as a way to take a trophy and then travel a long distance back with it. Mm-hmm. Kind of getting back to the idea of taking the the tail of a rat, right? Right. But then uh, the the Protestants, the colonials here, they begin uh, uh, they begin to perpetuate the practice by uh, putting 
putting a bounty, say 10 shillings worth of truck cloth on native scalps uh, that are taken by your native allies. So take the scalps from the enemy tribes people, the people that we don't have alliances with, and we will pay you in some cloth. All right. But then in the midst of uh, King's, King Philip's War, which we mentioned earlier, which went from about 1675 to 78, they extended the bounty to mercenaries, 30 shillings per scalp. Um, and you, you end up with plenty of horrific cases. There's uh, there's this case of uh, Puritan uh, kidnappee uh, Hannah Dustin. Uh, she and her fellow uh, um, kidnappees, they were held by uh, by uh, by a band of uh, tribes people and then they escaped. And uh, they uh, went on to uh, execute uh, two men, two women, and six children. And they received uh, 50 pounds as uh, as a reward for that act. And there's actually a statue of this woman in uh, uh it, New Hampshire. Is it just a statue of a murderer? Yeah. I mean, because that's it, – it really kind of sums up the the weird ways we – we have historically made sense of this violence between these two people. Well, yeah, I mean, talk about perverse incentives. So, so you've got a rat bounty system where mm-hmm. you assume, well, there's a rat problem, so we need to do something about it. So let's just collect rat tails, and that'll let us know there's at least some significant amount of rat killing going on. This seems like exactly the same principle being applied to human beings. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the the thing. We see this the, this bounty system spiral ever more out of control. Um, the French engaged in it, the English engaged in it, and it eventually becomes not only this thing that you're asking other tribes people to do, like, hey, you guys take scalps, right? Take the scalps of our enemies and we'll pay you. Scalps become the uh, uh, become a valuable item for uh, for colonial uh, individuals as well, uh, hunters and trappers, etc. Yeah, it's just evidence that you are carrying out the genocide that we're encouraging. Yeah, the uh, the first Massachusetts Act of 1694 encouraged uh, a bounty for Indi- any Indian life, uh, while a 1704 renewal of that act amended it so that you only got a hundred pounds for adults, ten pounds for children. 10 and older, and nothing for kids under 10, which sounds semi-decent at first until you realize that those uh, children would be sold as slaves or transported out of the country. Wow. Now, as early as 1712, uh, some folks were uneasy about that. And this is this is kind of a sobering thought to realize that, that not everybody was just completely on board with this. Yeah, I would hope not. Yeah. I mean, th- this is straightforwardly encouraging a bounty for murder. Right. I mean, though, it, at the same point, you have to acknowledge that, like, this was a this was a tough time to be alive. Like it's, there's a lot of fear uh, yeah. going on in the, in these communities and, and among these lawmakers. But, um, but even, even then there were people who said, I'm not sure about this. Uh, Massachusetts judge Samuel uh, Sewell uh, spoke in a session of the Massachusetts general court. And he said, he, he laid out that he really thought that, that this was, it was only okay. It should only be done if you're doing it to protect your family. And if it's becoming something that you're doing for commerce, then that's that's bad. Wait, so it's okay to murder a Native American, collect their scalp, and turn it in for money as long as the reason you did it wasn't the money so much that it was out of love for family. Yeah, I mean that's just the basic Protestant ethos, right? <laughs> that's the that's the, the, the I'm I'm kidding. Yeah, there. but I mean obviously that's the the horrible situation here is that you have it becomes the practice, and then people have to. Uh, people in positions of power and authority 
have to find ways to support it and rationalize it in their own mind. Yeah, but these rationalizations seem to be coming in direct conflict with the economic incentives being offered. If that's the case, why are you still offering the bounty? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and then it, uh, it 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 gets ever more out of control there, um, especially when ministers are are speaking about it and they're not condemning it. Uh, there's this wonderful uh, quote here from uh, Axtell and Struvent's uh, piece. It goes, when ministers not only look the other way, but shared in the profits from Indian deaths, the moral barometer of America dipped dangerously low. At the bottom, however, lay the American Revolution, in which Englishmen scalped Englishmen in the name of liberty. Scalping and other techniques of Indian warfare placed in the hands of a larger European population eventually sealed the Indians' fate in North America, but not before wreaking upon the white man a subtle form of moral vengeance. Hmm. So... At this point, I, th- I think it, it, when we think about the Cobra effect in relation to scalping. Yeah. Is on, this an example of the Cobra effect? Right. Because on one hand, it's kind of doing exactly what the bounty is supposed to do. It right. It's bringing a- about genocidal violence against the native population. Then again, I guess if you interpret the purpose of such a bounty on on Indian scalps as to be, I don't know, to pacify the border, you know, to Mm -hmm. make the frontier less bloody, you're obviously having a perverse incentive there. I mean, you're you're causing murderous havoc. Right. And there are plenty of examples, too, where the 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 scalp trade just intensifies the violence Uh, and you end up with uh, with uh, with various uh, native chiefs in some cases who are putting bounties then for their own people upon uh, the white man. And uh, and so you have this this kind of a war of extermination from both sides. There are examples, um, some of the uh, like in, in the, the Mexican examples we'll get to in a second, where um, Galton and his gang in the specifically, they would roll into an area and violence would just intensify because they're just stirring up all of this hatred. Yeah. So of course, uh, scalp hunting continued, um, and uh, and falsified scalping also pops up as an oh, inevitability. Here. Wait, so maybe just like collecting pigtails from a, a meat processing plant and saying, "Yeah, I shot all these pigs," you might have people getting scalps or parts of scalps from illicit sources. Uh, sort of, yeah. Um, there's a there's a quote uh, that I ran across. These materials from 19th century American historian Francis Parkman. And he said the hunting of humans would constitute a profitable occupation if only the prey was not so shy and nimble. So, I mean, the what thing, does that mean? Well, you can't just with the rats, you could just raise them. Right. Or, yeah. And rats are everywhere. People are can prove a little harder to kill, even if you're a ruthless gang of mercenaries uh, roving about. OK. And, you, and people are going to inevitably figure out, well, how can I get the most out of this kill? Uh if you would uh, re- read this uh, next quote uh, uh, for us, it comes from 20th century German uh, ethnologist of European colonization, George Frederiki. Uh, OK, it says this, along with the high profits of the fatal business, soon taught the shrewd tribespeople and their quick learning students, the lawless backwoodsmen and hunters, the art of skillfully making two, three or even more scalps from one scalp and selling them. People were not always very particular about where the scalp came from, because it was difficult or impossible to distinguish between a French scalp and an English one. Members of friendly tribes and even fellow countrymen fell victim to greed and the scalping knife. Not even the dead were spared. 
Yeah, so you could, this is interesting. It goes even beyond what, um, what, uh, what, uh, Federici was talking about here because you could apparently take a single adult scalp. You could stretch it as you dried it out and you could cut it into a dozen different things that you could pass off or try to pass off as scalps, which is, is quite, you can see the financial, uh, uh, possibilities there. This is one of those moments where it comes up every now and then you just imagine aliens coming in and observing our behavior. Yeah. And they're seeing somebody take the skin off the top of another human's head and stretch it and cut it into a bunch of pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it became such a problem uh, in Mexico where you had the, the the Mexican states there paying mercenaries to go around and hunt for scalps, um, they had to demand that scalps all include one or both ears or the crown. And they even set up regulatory committees. But the thing here is that, and I guess you kind of have to put yourself in their, their, their shoes or try to imagine the kind of individual who ends up taking the job as a scalp inspector. Uh, your job is to inspect these grisly trophies of, of human murder and genocide, uh, and then, uh, you know, reject it if it's the wrong type of scalp or if it's been falsified. Apparently they were easily bought off and you could, uh, so you just bribe them and then they'll accept a child scalp as an adult. And therefore, you know, there's even more incentive to kill a bunch of children. And that's exactly uh, the type of behavior you saw from individuals such as uh, John Glanton. Oh, yeah. I, I Earlier, I, I we called him, him Galton. Think, yeah, we said Galton, but it was Glanton, the Glanton yeah. gang. I think I had him confused with the, the Eagles song about the Daltons. Uh, <laughs> very different view of the uh, American West. But still, the scalp trade continued. And in, in many cases, it seemed to escalate. And uh, so like July 4th, 1863, in response to raids by Dakota in southern uh, Minnesota, the state issued $25 bonus payments to scouts who brought back a scalp, $100 for non-soldiers. And this later hit 200 bucks. So needless to say, a lot of scalping ensued. Uh, and in between uh, 1835 and the 1880s, uh, Mexican authorities, as we already mentioned, they paid private armies to hunt Native Americans, specifically targeting Apaches and Comanches. And I always find the uh, inclusion of Comanches um, and stuff like this to be interesting because the Comanches, in large part, were, um, you know, they, they were the people of the horse. And where did they get this horse technology, this biotechnology? They got it from uh, uh, the Spanish who introduced the horse into North America. Oh, really? Yeah. So you... You know, they encountered this this outside context problem. They survived it and and really became the the notorious uh, uh, warring people of the horse because of our interference. Um, but that's kind of a that's kind of a separate uh, tangent. But Comanche history is very, very fascinating. But wherever these uh, these bounties persisted, you just saw genocidal violence persist. And it really, yeah. really continued until the, the 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 balance was was successfully tipped completely in favor of the colonials, and then was replaced by new uh, anti-native uh, um, activities such as relocation programs and reeducation centers. Yeah. So the the horrible history um, did not stop there by any means. So in one sense, th- this might not be an example of cobra effect at all. If you just, as we said, uh, think of the uh, the ultimate goal. Of the the scalp bounty as being well, just we're, we want to exterminate the people who live here so we can make room to uh, to occupy the land ourselves. It seems like that sort of worked. Yeah, I mean the the unintended consequence, if there is one here, aside from having to deal with with individuals who are falsifying scalps and and getting more money than they should have, um, is just the the like the backwash of bloodshed and the fact yeah. that we 
just the idea that uh, that uh, the colonists bloodied themselves, bloodied their souls, and really just created this this stain of of shame for all time. Yeah, well, perhaps we should leave the realm of uh, scalp hunting, human bounties, and genocide, and and uh, come back to the idea of uh in backfiring incentives in general. Yeah, let's end on a lighter note. <laughs> All right, now Robert, I want to talk about the idea of negative incentives. So we've seen the idea that positive incentives can backfire. Right. Sometimes they backfire in just ways that produce unintended negative con- consequences. Sometimes they backfire in a way that completely contradicts your intention setting out, you know, makes the problem worse. But there are also negative incentives. Sometimes you want to take steps to prevent something from happening and discourage it. But what about when that makes the thing you're trying to discourage more likely to happen? Uh, here's one model. What if a punishment for a discouraged behavior itself becomes desirable in some huh. way, especially like a symbol of coolness? Hmm. Okay. So I can think of one good potential example of this. There's a New York Times article from 2007 I came across describing a problem within the Bangkok Police Department at the time. So department officials were, according to this article, trying to put a stop to misbehavior among the rank and file officers. Mm -hmm. So if you park in the wrong spot, if you show up for work late, if you get caught littering, etc. You know, there's some bad behavior among the cops and they're trying to disincentivize it. And the disincentive they came up with to stop this behavior was a form of a badge of shame, you know, like the the red letter. You, you get to wear something that lets people know that you have behaved badly. Uh-huh. And what they chose was a tartan armband. Unfortunately, this policy seemed to backfire, and uh, the officers ended up regarding the disciplinary armbands as collectible souvenirs to take home oh. with them. <laughs> So the badge of shame became a minor badge of honor. And in, in trying to work around this problem, their, their chief of the crime suppression division at the time came up with, uh, instead of tartan armbands, they used these Hello Kitty armbands, hoping this would be seen as sort of a humiliating affront to the officer's sense of power and masculinity. I'm not sure how well that worked out in the end, but anyway, this one very small example illustrates the principle that a Poorly conceived disincentive can not only fail to provide discouragement of a target behavior, it could potentially even increase the behavior if the disincentive comes to be seen as having some kind of value. Now, maybe that could be some kind of monetary or material value, uh, or maybe it could just be some kind of uh, cred or social cap- capital, like uh-huh. coolness. Okay. There's certainly a sense of countercultural coolness, right? You know, like if, if uh, a certain kind of shaming can be taken with pride. Yeah, like, oh, it's too extreme for TV, too hot for, for prime time. Yeah. Ooh, if it's too hot for prime time, I've got to see it. How hot could this be? Right. Uh, but then, of course, there are also examples where you could maybe have a, uh, a, a material advantage for example, uh, I think uh, I think about uh, supposed tax schemes that reward people for making uh, failed business investments. Oh yeah, you know, supposedly like you can uh, you can if you finance a really bad movie that bombs or something, you can end up manipulating your taxes in such a way that you end up with more money because the thing you financed bombed. Huh. You're kind of a producer's uh, scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I don't know if that's really the case in any country today, but I've at least heard accusations that that is how some very bad films of the past few decades <laughs> got financing. Don't know whether it's true. But there's another version of this I want to talk about, and that is the case of censorship. I think censorship is a classic example of attempts to uh, stop a problem causing the opposite of the intended effect. The problem is there is a message or a meme or an idea or you know anything that is spreading uh, content that you don't want disseminated mm-hmm. and attempting to stop the dissemination of that content very, very often seems to have the opposite of the intended effect. Yeah, it just makes you want to see it or hear it or read it. If the man's telling me not to consume it, I kind of want to consume it at least to see what the fuss is all about. Exactly. So there is a, uh, I found a Mercury News article from way back in 2003 uh, describing the event that inspired what's now known as the Streisand effect. Ah. I assume you've heard of this, Robert. Uh, I had not, actually. Oh, I mean, wow. I'm, I'm familiar with Barbara Streisand, but I wasn't uh, familiar with the Streisand effect. Well, that is indeed the title celebrity behind this effect. So here's how the story went. So there's an environmentalist photographer named Ken Edelman, not the same same as the political operative. Okay. Uh, but he, he was operating a website that I think at the time was called CaliforniaCoastline.org. CaliforniaCoastline.org is still up. I checked. And the purpose of this was to photograph many, many miles of the California coast to have before and after pictures of coastal development projects to track sort of coastline erosion and other potentially destructive effects of building projects along the coast. So it's almost kind of like a Google Maps scenario where they're just going to take a whole bunch of pictures to give an overall visual impression of something. Yeah, and I think the the reasoning was that so if, uh, you know, you have a project come in, build a bunch of stuff on the coast, you you might think that they have been destructive to the coastal ecosystem, but you don't exactly know because you don't have a picture of what it looked like before they built. Okay. But now you've got before and after photos. But uh, apparently in 2003, the actress Barbara Streisand discovered that the site featured a photograph of her oceanfront home in Malibu. And she felt this was an invasion of her privacy and filed a $10 million lawsuit to, to have the, the photograph and references to her removed from the site or taken down. Mm-hmm. And before her lawsuit, it appears that the photo of her home was not, not a big hit. It was accessed by only a handful of site visitors. But in the month after the suit was filed, according to this 2003 article, more than 420,000 people visited the California coastline site. Presumably to see what all the fuss was about. Now, I I don't know what their traffic was before that month. Mm-hmm. It was a, you know, coastal coastal photographs project in 2003. I can guess that it was not anywhere near 420,000 visitors. Yeah, probably not one of the hottest websites out there. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's one example. But are there any other examples of this Streisand effect where the attempt to shut down discussion or uh, or to hide evidence of something just draws more and more attention to it? I can definitely think of the example of boycotts, movie yes. boycotts. Mm-hmm. So let's say we've got a new awesome demonic possession movie coming out and it's got tons of graphic sex and violence and blasphemy just wall to wall. Okay. And you get a bunch of church groups who call for a boycott of the film. They go stand outside theaters to protest it. Does this end up hurting the film's ticket sales? 
or discouraging filmmakers from making movies like this in the future. Well, it's almost impossible to say because you can't go back in time and compare the film's success under a boycott and protest with the success of the same film under normal conditions. Like, you can't run the experiment with a control. It happened in reality. Right. Um, and there's no way to control the experiment. But it it is widely speculated, and I'm quite sure I'd agree, that these kinds of responses more often have the opposite of the intended effect, generating more publicity for an interest in the movie. Yeah, like I, I can definitely think of films that were considered video nasties in the UK that uh, were became underground hits and were the kind of things you'd go to kind of great lengths to get on video cassette back in the day. Uh, and you look at them today now that kind of the, you know, the, you can get anything. You can actually find these films that you heard about and have such notorious histories. And you, you watch them and in many cases they're just, they're, they're horrible. There's just nothing, they're not even that shocking. Yeah. But the mere fact that they were labeled as such, that they were banned, that they were prohibited and made this video nasties list. Yeah. They, they end up surviving. They end up becoming far more famous than they had any right to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the insistence that you must not look at a thing really increases your curiosity. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people today who are seeking out and watching some really terrible, low-budget Italian horror films and finding themselves very disappointed uh, because they don't match up to the reputation they had uh, acquired over the years. So here's the idea I have about how to how to turn the Streisand effect into money. Okay. Uh, if there aren't marketing and PR firms that already specialize in this, I, I suspect actually maybe there are. We just don't know about them. There should be. And what they should do is you come to them with a movie or, you know, any kind of media property that you're trying to generate interest in. And what they do is put that thing in front of people who they know will hate it and are activist in nature mm-hmm. who start to generate a, a boycotting or censoring, uh, calling for censorship kind of reaction to it. Yeah. And then that, of course, draws in, you know, all this curiosity. Oh, people are saying, well, I shouldn't look at this thing. I wonder what it is. So you're saying send out screeners of the exorcism film you're talking about to church groups. Yeah, to to whoever's the most conservative and censorious person who would hate it. Or you could do it the other way around. Really, you could be, uh, I guess, use, using something that would be offensive to any group. And almost anything might be offensive to somebody, right? Yeah. I mean, I can I can think of several cases. Uh, none of I'm not going to mention any of their names because they don't deserve any more publicity. But there are several individuals who have who you know continue to to seek out that notoriety for their creations to create things purely to just sicken and piss people off. And that, that's their, the whole uh, appeal. Like the, Are you thinking about a, a, a film about a, a mini segmented creature? Uh, yeah, that's one that comes to mind. Like that's, I think that's a clear case of a guy who, like there's nothing at the heart of anything. There's nothing artistically mm-hmm. pure. There's nothing creative. There's nothing, there's nothing even, even fun. Not, nothing fun or even all that shocking per se. Uh, in, in a grander scheme, there's certainly more shocking uh, pieces of cinema out there that have been created by 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 actual artists. Mm-hmm. But it's just the storm that they're able to uh, to to raise up around those creations and then make it like a part of our culture. Yeah. You know, just empty, cynical bids for attention. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I, I think the takeaway from this is that it, there does seem to be almost no surer way to draw attention to something than to try to prevent people from seeing it. Almost like any attempt to manipulate the attention that we give to something, be it negative or positive. Like it's just it's so easy 
like we think that it's going to be easy to economically manipulate something or even, uh, you know, through censorship, manipulate uh, the scenario, manipulate the way we interact with something. But it's just such a complicated affair. It's just we're going to we're going to overflow the tub either way. I think people do just have a sort of contrarian nature where we want to try to uh, upset the narrative of the institutional authority. Uh-huh. Uh, I think about this with so the, the Streisand effect definitely occurs with brands. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have a an article or a meme or something like that that makes Coca-Cola or, or Pepsi or McDonald's or something look bad. And they'll, they'll try to shut it down. You know, no more uh-huh. of this. And that just doesn't work. Right. Yeah, and it just draws more attention to it. And it especially happens when you see these, uh, you know, these like social media crowdsourcing message campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't remember what any of these hashtags are, but you know what I'm talking about. It'll be like hashtag uh, Coke feelings <laughs> and, and Coca-Cola is trying to get you to do free advertising for them on your social media page. But of course, people respond to it with stuff, you know, diabetes or whatever. Yeah. And I, I can just tell any time a brand tries to shut down those sort of mischievous responses to their campaign, they're just going to make people want to do it more. Yeah, indeed. You, you, you see that uh, almost on a weekly basis these days. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. We went from cobras and rats and pigs to the uh, the horrors of scalp hunting and then back into the uh, the world of censorship. Um, so uh, hopefully we gave you a lot to consider in terms of the Cobra effect here. I, I think this makes me want to hear what your thoughts are, you out there, the listener, what what your thoughts are about the nature of incentives. Mm-hmm. How do you actually uh, guide people's behavior in a reliable way that doesn't produce these unintended and perverse consequences? Yeah, I mean, it, really, we can hear from just about anybody on this. Are you a, a pet owner? Are you a parent? Are you a, a, a boss? Are you at all involved in or at least a, a close follower of, of uh, politics? Are you a government policymaker? Yeah. Yeah. What happens when you start uh, trying to push an issue with a you know stick with some money stuck on the end of it uh, to get the results you need? Yeah. Let us know. I'm uh, sure some carrots work better than others. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many different types of carrots, so many different types of sticks. Sometimes you just end up with... Uh, no carrots or a uh, a horse that likes to be poked with a stick. I don't know. Wait, what? How do we get there? Okay, sorry. <laughs> all right. So hey, you wanna you wanna get in touch with us? You wanna share uh, your thoughts on this topic or others? Uh, first of all, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. Newly redesigned. It's looking great. Um, easy to interact with. You'll find that again at stufftoblowyourmind.com, along with uh, various uh, links out to our social media accounts such as Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. We are blow the mind on most of those. And if you wanna get in touch with this directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any others or to give us a suggestion for a topic we should cover in the future. You can email us directly at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.